This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Ira Scheifetz. Dr. Scheifetz is the Chief of Critical Care and Chief Medical Officer at the Duke Children's Hospital in Durham, North Carolina. He is also Professor of Pediatrics and Anesthesia at the Duke University School of Medicine in Durham, North Carolina. Ira, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Pleasure to be here. Um, Ira, for many decades, you've written extensively on respiratory modalities in the pediatric intensive care unit, and indeed, you've lectured widely around the world on this topic. And in particular, you've brought great insight on the use of capnography in that environment. As we begin this discussion, what should we know about capnography? So, thank you, Jeff. Well, before we get into capnography, what I'd really like to do is kind of take a step back and just think about ventilation-perfusion relationships on a much more larger scale. When we talk about ventilation-perfusion relationships, of course, what we'd ideally like to have is a normal VQ ratio of 0.8. On the left side of the screen, looking at the situation of low ventilation to perfusion relationship, that is the world of oximetry. That's the situation of shunt perfusion. What I'd like to talk about today, and really the focus of this, this presentation, is going to be on capnography. And that's the right side of the screen. When we're dealing with high ventilation to perfusion ratios, the situation of dead space ventilation. And we have to keep in mind that when we look at dead space ventilation, the high VQ ratio, we're not only looking at situations of high ventilation to normal perfusion, but we also have to deal with situations of potentially normal ventilation to low perfusion. And keep in mind that capnography is a window into assessing pulmonary capillary blood flow. So could you take us through the different devices? Um, as you well know, um, there are portable devices, there are sophisticated handheld devices, there are devices that uh, exist on the top of uh, the ventilator, and indeed it's incorporated into the ventilator. Can you walk us through the different kinds of capnography devices? Absolutely. The basic colorimetric devices, the color change devices, are used in many places around the country and around the world to assess for the presence of carbon dioxide in an endotracheal tube that's been placed. The, the talk that I'm going to go through today and the details are much beyond that because these basic color change devices um, have a lot of potential for false positives. If they get wet, you can get false positives, sometimes false negatives. So we're going to really focus on as much more the true measurement of carbon dioxide elimination. Sidestream technology. Sidestream technology is often used in patients who are not mechanically ventilated, not intubated. They're often used for procedural sedation, often through a nasal cannula. Much of the really where the world of capnography is going and what I'd like to talk about today is mainstream capnography, where we actually place a CO2 detector, which I'll talk about in more details a little later, actually in the ventilator or between the ventilator circuit and the endotracheal tube to sample the gas coming out of the endotracheal tube. All of these different types of CO2 monitorings have, have appropriate applications, um, all have pros and cons, but again, for today, we're going to focus on mainstream technology. What I'd like to also do at this point is to really um, separate capnography into two different types of capnography. The first is time-based capnography, 
which is often more commonly known as end tidal CO2 monitoring. And we'll focus the first half of this presentation, or a little less than half the presentation, on this, this component of capnography. I'll then take the, the second portion of this presentation to focus on the newer or, or less commonly used uh, version of capnography, which is volume-based, also known as volumetric capnography. Starting out with time-based capnography, or end tidal CO2 monitoring, the slide now shows uh, a normal capnogram. On this capnogram, there are various entities of inspiration, transitional phase into exhalation, and then back to inspiration. These different angles and different slopes and different parts of the waveform all carries different potential clinical implications. For the purposes of today's presentation, which is much more of an overview of capnography, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail of this per se. However, I do want to, of course, stress point E which is the end tidal CO2 value most commonly used in time-based capnography. As we talk about time-based capnography, it's important to go through various clinical uses of it. I've already mentioned um, a couple of slides ago about the use of capnography to confirm intubation. And in fact, today in most clinical, if not all clinical scenarios, when a patient is intubated, the standard of care is to confirm appropriate placement of the endotracheal tube in the trachea or tracheal positioning with um, capnography to prove that CO2 is being eliminated. In some centers, um, such as ours, we actually continue capnography from initiation of mechanical ventilation as a monitor for potential inadvertent extubation. We find in our unit, when a patient is inadvertently extubated or self-extubates, of course the ventilator alarms immediately. But with the number of ventilator alarms, it's not often appreciated as quickly as the capnography alarm and the loss of a CO2 signal, because that really only occurs when you lose the integrity of your ventilator circuit. The next part of uh, time-based capnography that we will spend some time talking about is the adequacy of CPR and how time-based capnography and end-tidal CO2 monitoring can help um, assess appropriate CPR. In terms of capnography, its use, uh, capnography has been standard in, in the ICU, standard in uh, operating rooms and emergency departments around the world to again confirm intubation. But one of the areas that we always have to think about is um, what about the non-common um, areas where endotracheal tubes may be placed, specifically in the ward environment outside the ICU where equipment is less plentiful. Uh, this slide shows a study that was published in Resuscitation last year, looking at the availability of capnography on the wards. The study comes from the UK, and in this study you see that two-thirds of the time that a patient's intubated on the wards, capnography was not available. I think if we were to survey many centers in the US, we would see the exact same situation. So an area that we can potentially um, think about uh, providing a higher level of care, higher level of monitoring, is if we did get even the simple color change devices in the non-ICU, non-ED, non-ER settings. I'd like to turn now and ask our colleagues around the world a question. Could you first please state your city and country location? And the question is this. Do you routinely use end-tidal CO2 monitoring to confirm placement of the endotracheal tube in your intensive care environment? If so, what device do you use? The second question is, do you routinely use end-tidal CO2 monitoring for emergent intubations outside of the ICU at your hospital? If so, what device do you use? 
Ira, could you take us through um, resuscitation a little further? Uh, you've, you've made the point, and I agree, that um, confirmation of endotracheal tube placement with capnography of some kind of device um, is, I believe, also standard of care in our environment. But could we go a little further? It's use uh, to monitor the quality of, of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Right. The use of capnography, and again, in this case, specifically time-based capnography in the area of cardiopulmonary resuscitation, is really starting to gain some momentum. I'd like to share some, some data. And the study from 2015 looks at the average end tidal CO2 value in two groups of patients. On the left side of the slide, in the darker gray, are those patients that experienced a cardiac arrest, underwent CPR, and a return of spontaneous circulation. And we can see that that average end tidal CO2 value is significantly higher than in a group as shown in lighter gray in which those patients never had return of spontaneous circulation. And this is statistically significant with a p-value of 0.001, showing that those patients that had a higher end tidal CO2, presumably indicating um, better CPR, more effective CPR, and a greater amount of pulmonary blood flow or cardiac output were more likely to uh, survive. There's a clear association in, with an end tidal CO2 value greater than 10 predicting survival. Many clinicians really feel that that end tidal CO2 value of 10 is probably low and we should be aiming higher. Can't give an exact number, somewhere in the upper teens to 20 value, maybe even a little higher. Uh, not a lot of data to definitively give a value, but it's clear based on the, the, the prior study I just showed that if we can target a higher end tidal CO2 value, again reflecting improved cardiac output and improved pulmonary blood flow, maybe we can lead to improved outcome. So in summary of this little the section here is that using capnography during CPR, the presence of exhaled CO2 is going to be an indicator of effective high-quality CPR. It also can be used, and I'll show a graphic shortly, to help indicate provider fatigue when the person doing CPR is tiring. And as I've mentioned and we'll show shortly, it is a good indicator of return of spontaneous circulation. In this graphic on the top, we see as indicated by the arrow an area in which uh, entitled CO2, which had been maintained at a plateau, looks like approximately 15 or so, decays or decreases down to a small amount. That is indicating in this situation a provider who's providing CPR tiring. The arrow indicates the uh, rescuer change, a new provider who's fresh comes in, and we can see a significant increase in the entitled CO2 value up towards 20. On the bottom, is an indication or a graphic that shows return of spontaneous circulation where we have CPR with an entitled CO2 value just below 20. Patient undergoes, undergoes defibrillation and then successful return of spontaneous circulation with an entitled value returning closer to baseline. So very um, anecdotal but or graphical displays of how capnography can use during CPR, but really important teaching points of its applicability and potential improvements in patient outcomes. I'd like to turn now and ask our colleagues around the world a question. In your response, could you first please state your city and country location? And the question is this, in your pediatric intensive care unit, do you routinely target end tidal CO2 to monitor and guide the performance of cardiac massage? If so, what levels of millimeters of mercury are you attempting to target to assure optimal resuscitation during CPR? 
If we switch gears just a little bit and we talk a little more generally about capnography, specifically in terms of those entities that increase the end tidal CO2 value, when we see end tidal CO2 rising, what can that be? We've already discussed in the situation of CPR, of course, is improved pulmonary blood flow, improved cardiac output. That does not necessarily need to be only in a resuscitation situation. If a patient um, has depressed cardiac output for any one of many end, uh, reasons, and cardiac output increases, again, entitled CO2 will increase as more blood passes through the lungs. The second bullet is quite obvious, is that a patient who is hypoventilating will end up with an increase in entitled CO2. The other entities that increase the entitled CO2 value, fever, increased worker breathing, and agitation, all of which are related to increasing entitled CO2 through an increase in CO2 production. And lastly, a bicarbonate bolus, the artificial administration of CO2 into the circulation will lead to an entitled CO2, at least transiently. If we now look at the other side of the equation and those entities that decrease the entitled CO2 value, we a decrease in cardiac output, meaning less pulmonary blood flow. Uh, in terms of the decrease in pulmonary blood flow, it could also be related not only to a global decrease in cardiac output, but also pulmonary hypertension, often seen in the neonatal world. Or in the adult world, it can actually be the formation of pulmonary emboli. And although rare in almost any population, especially post-op cardiacs, it could be indicative of air emboli. Hyperventilation, the elimination of more CO2, bringing down the PaCO2 will also decrease end tidal CO2. Uh, the next point often not thought about is circuit leaks, endotracheal tube obstruction or air leaks around the endotracheal tube. Any, any condition in which the CO2 being exhaled may not be seen by your uh, CO2 detector. And lastly is those entities that decrease CO2 production, whether that be hypothermia and or sedation. Ira, that's a very helpful overview. Could I ask you now about volumetric capnography? Um, you very clearly took us through time-based capnography. Uh, in the last 10 years, a great deal of literature uh, talking about volumetric capnography. What is volumetric capnography and how can it be useful in our environment in the pediatric intensive care unit? So volumetric capnography has been around and known about for almost 30 years. And what's interesting when you review the literature, and I'll share much of that with you today, is that many of the publications are old, 10, 20 years old. And then there was almost a gap, and you really didn't see a lot in the literature up until the last year or two. And this entity is get, regaining a lot of clinical interest um, because I do think it, it has a potential for clinical applicability that can change outcomes. Um, and it also, I think, is reaching a point that people are truly appreciating more the physiology. So with that, what I'd like to start with is to go through some basic definitions of volume-based um, capnography or volumetric capnography, and I'll use those terms interchangeably, and the physiology associated with it. So this first slide, this first graphic, um, although it's kind of obviously a schematic using balloons, it's probably the best definition of volumetric capnography that I can come up with. In this scenario, both the red balloon and the blue balloon both have the same end tidal CO2. They both have the same partial pressure of carbon dioxide at 35 torr. But the blue breath has a greater volume of carbon dioxide than the red breath. And what we're talking about here is how to use capnography to really monitor, measure, and then apply the volume of carbon dioxide coming out of a patient's lungs. If we leave the balloons aside and we look at more of an actual trace here, 
what we see in both of the schematics on the left side and the right side, we see on the vertical axis entitled CO2 or a partial pressure of CO2 in millimeters of mercury, and the horizontal axis is volume of gas. Uh, both of these breaths, both of these exhalations, both have the same end tidal CO2 of about 32 um, millimeters of mercury. However, on the right side of the slide, we see that that exhalation is a larger breath being exhaled, and we have an exhaled volume of carbon dioxide greater than the left side. So we got to get away from, and when we deal with volumetric capnography, the concepts of partial pressure and time. We're really looking at quantity of CO2 in relation to total volume of gas exhaled. How do we do this, or, or how does the technology give us these values? Um, the actual um, technology itself is, is quite simple. What becomes complex is how we apply it clinically. We need to take two waveforms that are standardly obtained. The first on the top part of this tracing is a standard flow versus time scalar. And the bottom part of this tracing, we see a standard time-based capnogram that we've already discussed. And what the software of these uh, volumetric uh, monitoring devices do is they integrate these two signals such that we end up with what's called a single breath CO2 waveform. And what's shown on the right side of this slide is CO2 elimination per single breath. And that's important that each of these traces is a breath-by-breath breath trace. Let's take this and look into this in a little more detail. First, how do you get these data? All the devices that are used, and some are standalone devices, some are integrated to, into ventilators. It doesn't really matter which uh, application or which device you're using. They're all similar. And it's a combined approach of a pneumotechometer measuring flow over time to give us our flow scalar, and a CO2 detector integrated into a single system. When we look at the single breath CO2 waveform, it clearly has three different phases. So to orient the audience to this slide, the vertical axis is expired CO2, the horizontal axis is volume of gas exhaled. We see three different phases. Phase one represents that volume of gas coming from the large airways. That's the anatomic or airway dead space. So we know right now just by looking at the CO2 elimination curve, what is the volume of the tidal volume that is being um, used to ventilate anatomic airway dead space. Phase two is a transitional zone. We'll come back to later how we deal with that transitional zone, which is a mixed ventilation of the large airways in the alveoli. And phase three, which represents that quantity of gas that reaches the alveoli and reflects alveolar ventilation. So when we talk about volumetric capnography, uh, the, the primary variable that we look at is VCO2. And VCO2 is the volume of carbon dioxide eliminated, of course, via the lungs, representing changes in both ventilation and perfusion. It's important to stress that the units of VCO2 are milliliters per minute. And when you think of that, it really gives you an idea of what we're looking at. We're looking at the volume of carbon dioxide eliminated per breath, summed over a minute, thus VCO2. VCO2, as I've mentioned, is greatly affected or primarily affected by ventilation, perfusion, and of course, diffusion. So we go through this discussion. I'm not really going to talk much about diffusion. As CO2 diffuses so rapidly, it really becomes uh, a parameter that's not clinically relevant. But we do want to talk about is uh, how VCO2 reflects acute clinical changes. From a respiratory perspective, it helps us assess the ventilator-lung interactions. And from a cardiovascular perspective, 
It helps us to assess pulmonary capillary blood flow and to use that as a surrogate for cardiac output, with cardiac output being the sum of pulmonary capillary blood flow plus shunt that we can't measure via capnography. Um, Ira, this is a very helpful overview. Could you take us a little further into the physiology? And in particular, uh, what is known about the rate of CO2 elimination in children? Is it, um, is it known and is it published? Right. So let's, let's go through physiology in a little more detail. And of course, one of the most important components of CO2 elimination is CO2 production. Any entity that's going to increase CO2 production will increase elimination and vice versa. But one of the parts you need to know if you get into the normals of CO2 elimination is what is normal CO2 production? Well, normal CO2 production is primarily dependent on the patient's weight and activity. So Brody's formula says that for a healthy resting person with a normal respiratory quotient of 0.8, CO2 production is eight times the weight to the 0.75 power. However, clinically, that's not very helpful because most of our patients that we care about are not healthy, resting, or normal. So for many years, we really never knew what normal numbers were. We really had to use VCO2 as changes over time, trends, and patterns. But recently, Craig Smallwood from your program did a nice study as published in Respiratory Care showing us normal CO2 elimination values. We see a um, graph of VCO2 or CO2 elimination based on a patient's height. VCO2 equals 115 times the height in sonometers to the point, negative 0.71 power. You can use that, probably not as clinically applicable or as useful as one would like in terms of weight. We do see normal values for VCO2 based on age cutoffs of up to six months, six months to eight years, and greater than eight years in a milliliters per kilo per minute value. And I think this really is gonna help clinicians know what normals are and how far a patient is from normal. If we get back to the physiology in addition to CO2 production, we have to look at the cardiovascular system. We have to keep in mind that any entity that increases pulmonary, uh, that increases pulmonary capillary blood flow, specifically increasing cardiac output, will increase VCO2. And any entity that decreases cardiac output, decreasing pulmonary capillary blood flow, will decrease VCO2. Again, as we mentioned, for entitled CO2 values, it's the same for VCO2 values. Any entity, any clinical entity that impedes pulmonary blood flow, in the adult world, often pulmonary embolism. In the pediatric world, pulmonary hypertension or development of pulmonary hypertension could decrease your or will decrease your VCO2 values. For us clinically, we find that the use of VCO2 is important um, when we're treating patients with pulmonary hypertension with nitric oxide. A beneficial effect of nitric oxide, if you want to see if you are getting a beneficial effect, you would then see VCO2 rise. On the other hand, if you're using nitric oxide and you're weaning it and you're worrying about rebound of how fast you can wean, you can look to see and be sure that VCO2 is not falling, again, as a marker of pulmonary blood flow. The other entities in the cardiovascular system that will affect VCO2 or is going to be any kind of metabolic release of CO2, and that, of course, will include artificial release in terms of a bicarb administration. Uh, if we can now move on to the lungs, changes in miniventilation will affect VCO2. If a patient's miniventilation is increased, VCO2 will rise. Decreased miniventilation, VCO2 will fall. Bronchospasm, a patient who develops bronchospasm will show a decrease in VCO2 because they cannot fully exhale. Treat the bronchospasm and release uh, the bronchospasm to improve ventilation, VCO2 will increase. One of the biggest challenges about VCO2, though, is competing variables. 
What if a patient has increasing cardiac output at the same point they have decreasing minute ventilation? The clinician then has to determine you know, which is primary. And the key here is that VCO2 will always move in the direction of the primary pathophysiology. If we now take this into a little deeper dive, looking at single breath CO2 and pulmonary capillary blood flow, changes in VCO2 have to be proportional to changes in pulmonary capillary blood flow if minute ventilation is stable, which makes us think about can we use VCO2 or single breath CO2 technology to, uh, to intervene and to manage a patient's cardiac output, to treat pulmonary emboli, or I mentioned pulmonary hypertension where it may be useful to determine whether nitric oxide is effective or not. But also, what about titrating inotropes or assessing a patient's intravascular volume status? These are all potential entities that we really need to think about. That's very helpful, Ira. And is there data in the literature to support the use of VCO2 in this way? So up until very recently, the answer would have been no. But there have been several studies lately that actually show that this, in fact, is, the physiology, in fact, does, does play out. So on this study from uh, 2013, there's two groups of patients. Now, I have to acknowledge it's a smaller study with 24 patients in one group and 20 in the other. But these patients were divided into responders and non-responders to uh, fluid boluses. And as we see in the middle of the data, those patients that were volume responders demonstrated an increase in the end tidal CO2 value. So those patients who were intravascularly deplete got volume led to more, much better intravascular volume status, the entire CO2 rose. On the bottom part, we actually see the same finding for VCO2, that those patients that needed volume and responded to volume, VCO2 rose. So one can interpret these data to mean that the use of VCO2 or VCO2 can be used to really help assess whether or not a patient who's getting a volume bolus is seeing clinical benefit or not. Often we know clinically that we give uh, volume and you try to figure out is it making a difference? Have we given enough volume? Can we give more volume? Of course, we can follow heart rate and perfusion, but VCO2 and CO2 elimination may be another parameter that could help us. I'd like to turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. In your response, could you first please write your city and country location? And the question is this, do you routinely follow VCO2 for intubated patients in your ICU? If so, how do you use VCO2 to assist in guiding clinical decision-making? Are there subsets of patients for which you find trending VCO2 more useful than others? So Ira, um, that's a helpful overview and it's interesting data to help guide and target uh, the effectiveness of, of fluid resuscitation. But as you know, most of us are used to still thinking in terms of dead space and dead space ratio. How can we integrate that to back to dead space ratio? Absolutely, so let, let's go back to dead space and just do a quick overview. So physiologic dead space or total dead space is a sum of airway dead spaces depicted in blue in this slide and alveolar dead space is depicted in purple. So we already know based on our prior discussion, we pretty much know airway dead space. So what we have to do now is figure out as we use this clinically, how do we calculate the VWT ratio and then off of that, how do we calculate alveolar dead space? This summary slide really tries to put that in a little more perspective through the, the schematic. Um, alveoli or region of alveoli, A in this schematic represents shunt. B represents a normal condition that's both ventilated and perfused. And C represents dead space, alveoli that are being ventilated but not perfused. 
Physiologic dead space, total dead space is gonna be airway dead space, the dead space as shown here of the airways, plus the entity of the lung represented by C, which is the alveolar dead space. How is this calculated? So the VDBT ratio, the ratio of physiologic dead space to total tidal volume, should say normal values are about 0.25 to 0.35, or any of us, or us two sitting here right now, somewhere between a quarter and a third of the volume of gas that we're breathing is dead space, and the rest is reaching our alveoli and participating in gas exchange. We calculate the VDVT ratio using the Enkoff modification to the Bohr equation. And this is PaCO2, and that's little a, arterial CO2, minus the mixed expired CO2 over the arterial CO2. So the calculation of the dead space ratio does require an arterial blood gas. With that, let's go back to the single breath CO2 waveform and, and dissect this in a little more detail. So the schematic here, again, is a single breath CO2 waveform or exhaled CO2 per breath. What we're going to do is we're going to take phase two and dissect phase two into two halves, left and right. The reason we do that is it's really hard to know in phase two, the transitional zone, how much of that gas is really from the upper airways versus the lower airways. But the slope of phase two is so steep, and honestly, clinically, it doesn't become important whether it's 50-50 or 60-40 or 40-60. The actual milliliters of gas we're talking about are clinically or, or negligible. So now we actually know the true, out of the true tidal volume, which is now displayed on the slide, uh, the total volume of gas being given to a patient or breathed by a patient per breath, we now know the true component of that tidal volume, that's airway dead space. It's phase one, as I showed earlier, plus about half of phase two. So if we, if we know the total tidal volume and we know airway dead space, we now subtract those numbers and we get the portion of the tidal volume that's available for gas exchange, the portion of your tidal volume that reaches the alveoli. So we know that, and we also now know dead space. We know the dead space fraction based on the prior equation of PaCO2 minus mixed expired CO2 over the PaCO2. So many clinicians are really more used to using the Douglas back techniques to measure, or at least aware of that as measuring uh, dead space ventilation. So it's important just to take one slide here and show in the study from intensive care medicine, and the fact that methodology that I just reviewed um, in terms of volumetric hypnography match almost exactly to the Douglas back method when all the appropriate um, calculations are added to that. So, so folks, clinicians should feel comfortable that this technology has been well vetted and well studied. Important point here is the difference between the end tidal CO2 value and the arterial PCO2 value. That, that difference uh, is really important to think about in terms of physiology. And as I walk through this, it's important to stress the point that the alveolar concentration of carbon dioxide is actually generally slightly higher than that of arterial blood. The PCO2 in the airways and the alveoli is higher than PaCO2. Well, why is it then that when we actually measure end tidal CO2, the number that we see is usually a little bit lower than the PaCO2? And that difference normally is about two to five millimeters of mercury. And that's because this exhaled CO2 coming from the alveoli passed through the upper airways, and those upper airways are void of carbon dioxide. The upper airways are what? Anatomic or airway dead space void of CO2. And as we dilute the exhaled alveolar gas with gas from the airways without carbon dioxide, what's measured as coming out of the endotracheal tube as the end tidal CO2 value will be slightly lower 
than the PaCO2. However, in the situations of lung disease and high dead space ventilation, those, uh, that gradient will increase. In this publication by McSwain et al. from Respiratory Care in 2010, on this graph in the vertical axis, we see the difference between the end tidal CO2 value and the arterial CO2 value graphed on the horizontal axis against the VDVT ratio. And we see a nice linear relationship. However, the, the difference or the spray of the data is a lot more obvious on the higher VDVT ratios as lung injury is worsening. So we take this data that really is important physiologically and put it through standard statistical analyses. We end up with four different groups of patients. So the first group of patients are those that have normal or near normal lungs, in which the correlation between the entile CO2 value and the PaCO2 is 0.95. Pretty pretty good correlation and a gradient that's almost zero. In this situation, PaCO2 is well reflected by end tidal CO2. As lung disease worsens, and we now see this middle group with a VDVT ratio between 0.4 and 0.55, the correlation decreases a little bit, but the gradient increases to about six. If we now take this all the way to the, the last group of patients, where we see a, a VDVT ratio greater than 0.7, so significant lung injury, we still have a correlation between the end tidal CO2 and the PaCO2 of about 0.78. A good correlation, many would, would accept that number, but we now see the gradient is almost 18. And what we see here is that means the, the lines, the, the lines of end tidal CO2 and PaCO2 remain reasonably parallel, but instead of being superimposed, they now are spraying apart. And that difference reflects what? It reflects an increase in alveolar dead space and an increased gradient now of 18. So does entile CO2 accurately reflect PaCO2? The answer is yes in all populations, but if you understand the physiology, you realize that in the sicker lung, there'll be an increased gradient, but changes in PaCO2 will still be reflected by a proportional change in entile CO2 as long as lung disease is constant, or VDVT ratio is constant. Um, this very interesting physiology, but of course, I'm sure my colleagues around the world are, are wondering what I'm wondering right now, which is, does the VD, does the VD to VDT ratio, does it correlate with outcome? These, is, is there data in our field to demonstrate this? There actually are data. Uh, the first data I'd like to share are those relating the VDVT ratio with extubation success. In this publication from Critical Care Medicine in 2000, on the vertical axis, we see percent chance of successful extubation and the horizontal axis is increasing VDVT ratio or increasing dead space. As we see, those patients with a lower VDVT ratio are more likely to successfully extubate. If we take these data and put it through the receiver operating curves, we have um, three different groups of patients. Those patients that have a VDVT ratio less than 0.5, in which they have a 96% chance for successful extubation. A middle group where the VDVT ratio is between 0.51 and 0.64, and those patients had a 67% chance for successful extubation, whereas those patients with a VDVT ratio in excess of 0.65, only 20% of them successfully extubated. So in our clinical practice, as many centers do, we do daily or twice daily extubation readiness testing. We actually use our VDVT ratio um, as an indicator to enter an extubation readiness test. Arbitrarily, we've merged the top two groups and we use a cutoff of 0.6. And if the VDVT ratio is greater than 0.6, we don't test those patients. Less than 0.6, we do. So I do think that the VDVT ratio, based on these data, do have clinical applicability. 
If we switch gears a little bit and now look at adult ARDS patients, this is a study by Rich Calais and Restory Care going back now over a decade ago. And these are paired data in adult ARDS uh, patients from days one, two, three, and six of lung injury. In each of these paired data, the left uh, pair are the survivors and the right of each of those pairs are the non-survivors. And we can see that from days one, two, three, and up to day six of ARDS, in each case, the survivors had a lower VDVT ratio than the non-survivors. If we take these data and look at them statistically, we see that those patients who had a VDVT ratio greater than 0.55 at any point during the first six days of ARDS had an increased risk of mortality. The other important point that it, that it should make here, the breakpoint is always about 0.5 to 0.55. If we take this uh, adult ARDS data and shift it a little bit now looking at children, and I do have a little bit of a change here, and I do want to stress that instead of the VVT ratio, the, these next two studies look at the AVDS fraction. Um, the difference there is in the calculations of the VDVT ratio versus the AVDS fraction is whether or not uh, N-tidal CO2 is used instead of mixed expired. And, and I'll show that comparison in a couple of slides. But, but for the purposes here of just talking about outcomes right now, what we see here on the right side of the slide is those patients, children, who have an OI greater than 10, so they have acute lung injury, that the patients that had a higher AVSDF um, were more likely to die or had a higher percent mortality. If we graph those data or look at those data a little differently in a, in a different study, on the vertical axis, we have mortality rate. On the horizontal axis, we have the ABDS fraction at uh, onset of ARDS. And we see a clear step up that those patients that have the higher dead space fraction clearly have a much higher mortality, uh, multifold higher. So we, in adults and, uh, and pediatric patients, that those patients that have lung injury uh, to a degree that they have a greater dead space do have a greater risk of mortality. Looking at this um, AVDS fraction versus the VDVT ratio, there is a linear correlation. Again, the difference in these calculations is whether the end-tidal CO2 value is used uh, versus the mixed expired. The correlation here is quite good, but you do have a fair amount of outlier patients. And, and the real difference in those outlier patients are those patients that have heterogeneous lung injury, such that the end-tidal CO2 value is not equivalent to the mixed expired value. Ira, um, it's been a wonderful overview. Um, in, in closing, uh, I, I guess I have two questions for you. One, to hear your summary comments, but um, are there any guidelines in our society um, on the recommendation of the use of capnography in the care of the critically ill child? Yes. Uh, published uh, this past year in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine is uh, the findings or the recommendations from the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury um, Consensus Conference. And if you look at the, the article amongst the police group looking at monitoring, and I'll read the recommendation, is that continuous monitoring of CO2 is recommended in children with invasive mechanical ventilation using end tidal CO2 time curves, volumetric capnography, and or transcutaneous CO2 measurements. So it doesn't really tell us which technique to use, but there was strong agreement by that, by this group of experts that CO2 monitoring is important. But I do want to summarize to say that I do believe that capnography is a sensitive indicator of a change in a patient's cardiorespiratory status. It does signal future changes in PaCO2 and may help us eliminate the need for blood gases in some situations. 
It does provide rapid feedback of how gas exchange responds to ventilator changes. It does reflect pulmonary blood flow as a surrogate of cardiac output. It may help us uh, facilitate us in, in terms of vent management if we use VCO2 as a surrogate for PaCO2. And lastly, as the data I just reviewed, is it does help us predict outcomes in terms of extubation success and mortality in those patients with ARDS. Well, Dr. Ira Sheppitz from Duke University, thank you very much for this wonderful overview of a complex topic. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here to be able to review this. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.